Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. All right, Dr. Tommy Thomas, welcome to Thoughts on Record. Good day. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Excellent. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to have a family doc uh, to be able to ask. Obviously, I have a ream of questions here. Sounds good. And uh, I'm really excited to be able to have a chat with you today about all this. Well, this is is a new experience for me, and uh, I'm curious to see where this goes. Yeah, me too. I think we'll we'll have some fun with it. I guess we'll let the audience know that uh, you and I have known each other for quite a while. Right. Right. So um, I'm uh, quite good friends with uh, your older brother. Correct. So we, we've known each other for a bit and uh, I've been watching your journey journey through progressing in, in terms of being a family doc and uh, man, what an opportunity to be able to chat now as uh, adults. That's, it's, uh, you know, if you'd said this uh, 20 plus years ago, it'd be, it'd still be a bit of a shock. Right. <laughs> 20 plus years ago, anything about it, right? I know. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Eh? Mm-hmm. Time flies. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to do for the listener is just for all the guests, give them a little bit of a context for uh, for who they're listening to and, and maybe to know what what they're up to. Absolutely. Um, so I've mentioned that you're a family doc. I am. Um, can you fill in a bit some of the blanks? I'd love to know you, you know where you're it. practicing, the population that you're seeing. You what, what are you up to? Yeah. Yeah. So I've um, I did my residency at the uh, Primrose Medical Center. It's one of the uh, sister sites to the Briere uh, training site. And uh, I graduated in 2015, and uh, I've been working at a few different sites and kind of. As all junior doctors do, we're never really quite, well, junior doctors in the primary care field anyways, uh, we're never really quite sure where to go right away. So we're always told by our by our, uh, our trainers and our, and our professors in, in residency to, to try a few things first. And, uh, you know, almost five years in, I'm still trying to figure it out. And, and I kind of work on a few different sites. I, uh, I, I work uh, primarily at a clinic out in Rockland as a family health team out there, 15 docs, uh, and I kind of work as a kind of a full-time locum. So three days a week, I, I kind of cover overflow patients and, and, and urgent care uh, issues for this particular clinic. You know, 28,000 patients, it's a pretty big uh, practice and, wow. it, and it serves the rural community. Um, <clears throat> so I'm there three days a week. I also work out in uh, kind of an urban practice in Orleans, kind of as a locum out there, uh, in a practice with some docs that I've known for quite a few years. And I also work at the Ottawa Mission. Uh, I work kind of as a consultant uh, uh, to a, a nurse practitioner run clinic uh, for for the auto mission, just attached right beside it. And sometimes I help out at uh, Briere Primrose, uh, kind of as a as a supervisor for for residents or, or to see patients for uh, for for physicians that are uh, that need a bit of a backup. Yeah. Wow. So you have a real diversity of work. Yes. Very uh, very different population bases in all three sites. Wow. Absolutely. It must give you such a different window into the different uh, challenges that at each sort of stratum of society. Absolutely. I mean, the one approach at one clinic won't work for some of the other populations I work with. Right? Absolutely. So, so you really do have to tell your approach. Interesting. And uh, well, we can get into the mental health aspects of that because I'm sure there's problems that show up specific to each one of those different populations, but we can uh, we can get into that shortly. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I mean, again, I have just a ton of questions for you. You got uh, it. So we'll go down the list here. And yeah. uh, in, in chatting about the podcast this week with a few of my colleagues, they were also similarly interested to uh, hear the answers to a number of these questions. Right. So, so no right. pressure, Tommy. No, I feel like, boy, got to step up, got to step up. <laughs> but just, just really coming from a place of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess as a first question, what's the most common clinical presentation uh, of mental illness that you would see in a typical week? Or are there a handful of ones that t- seem to show up over and over again that are kind of the, the usual suspects, if we put it that way. Absolutely. I mean, I think the biggest 
two conditions you'll see frequently are anxiety, depression, and, right. and or a combination of both. Now, is the diagnosis that we're essentially applying to all these patients accurate? No. This is initially what our, what our, what our first point of contact with the patient will be. Based on the initial set of symptoms that we see, we kind of make these judgments. And if I were to go through and do a bit of a chart audit on things I've seen in the last, say, few weeks, most of that would have been anxiety, depression. But can I say there? Can I say with certainty that there weren't other psychiatric conditions involved? Absolutely not. I mean, certainly, um, you know, we're, we're we're not diagnostic experts, but for a lot of the most common things, those are the two things you typically see. Right. So those are the two biggest buckets or envelopes that you would you would see there. From a family doc lens, uh, how important does it feel to come up with a specific diagnosis or do you really just want to assess, okay, what are the functional implications of these symptoms? What can I do as a family doc to address it? Like how how do you think through that right. that piece? I think it's a a big thing is is access to services in the back end. So right. there's more of a pressure to make that diagnosis when you're the only clinician this patient might actually see. Right. Especially if they have ac a limited access to psychiatry or, or psychologists to help clarify what's going on. So when you're the, you're the, you're it, when you're the only clinician that this person will see, that, that pressure does kind of fall onto you. Right. Now, there is the benefit of having a consult and, and it's a service where we can kind of email or, or, or send an electronic message to a, a staff consultant and to get their opinion. But in psychiatry, that's a hard thing to do. Right. It's not like, you know, taking a picture of a rash and sending it to a dermatologist or, you know, you know, asking a question about a result on a radiology scan to a surgeon. I mean, that's a very specific and clear question. Whereas when you're dealing with a psychiatrist, you have to be able to give them a lot of information and they often have to make that assessment themselves. Right. And our interpretation of what that patient is telling us is certainly colored as well. So, you really, you're really stuck on your own. So then that pressure is there, but we also don't have the level of training to really accurately make these diagnoses. You know, we can maybe diagnose some of the more obvious common presentations. We always say in medicine, there's horses and not zebras. Now, provided you're not in Africa, you're likely to see a horse and not a zebra. So in instead of diagnosing things that, that are out of our purview, we really try to stick to the more common diagnoses. But ultimately, you know, if I'm in an urban practice and I have access to psychiatric services, then, then oftentimes, especially, you know, when I feel like I'm out of my depth, I'm, I'm referring on right away. Okay. It's been estimated that up to two thirds of physician visits, uh, you know, might ultimately be for mental health concerns, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it may be the case that people come in with a somatic complaint of some kind. Correct. Uh, gastrointestinal right. or, you know, that, that's the one that seems to be quite common. Yeah. Uh, maybe chronic pain of some kind. Right. Headaches right. of a nonspecific nature. Right. Whatnot. But ultimately... Uh, these may turn out to be manifestations of of what are ultimately psychological complaints. Absolutely. Tommy, as a, as a family doc, is it your experience that that holds true? Is that an underestimate, overestimate? How do you how does that sort of play out for you in your practice? Well, you know, we kind of alluded to this before we kind of started the podcast, and and uh, I kind of did a bit of a chart review for the last few weeks, just seeing what I had seen. Uh, from a presentation perspective, and, and you're quite right, it was just under two-thirds of the presentations really? I saw had some mental health component to it. Now, it may not have been the primary source of the visit, but there was a component of it, whether it be a medication adjustment or a kind of check-in to see how things were going or, you know, uh, you know, just a bit of a, you know, a bit of an evaluation. Now, ultimately, you know, a lot of mental health issues, especially that first presentation, will come in and they'll often have a somatic or physical complaint. 
and you, you've dedicated you know, 10, 15 minutes to the, to, uh, to this physical complaint. And, and when you're about to leave the room, that's when you're, we would call it the, uh, the, the door handle consult, your, your hands on the door frame and, and, uh, and on the door handle, you're about to leave the room. And then they say, then they, then they come forward with, with, uh, kind of the, the primary reason of why they're there. Right. And, and as a clinician that can be, you know, it can be a bit of a stress, but it has to be addressed. And it's very easy as a clinician to just dismiss that and kind of say, okay, well, we'll talk about that at the next visit. Right. But we don't have a level of access that is probably enough for a lot of patients. So if I'm saying, okay, come back and talk to me in four weeks after you've had a significant mental health issue, I mean, that's inappropriate. So you have to sit there and address that at the time, which makes, you know, time constraints, it makes it difficult for us. You know, Tommy, I really wanted to ask you about yeah. that just as a a window into what practicing in family medicine mm -hmm. is like from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. As psychologists in prior practice, we have the luxury of meeting with clients for typically 50 minutes, but sometimes, right. you know, if, if there's something going on, you can stress that to an hour. Right. You know, in, in a worst case scenario, you just pop out in the waiting room, let your next client know, hey, I've got a little bit of a situation on the go. I might need 10, 15 minutes. In my experience, people are always very forgiving around that. Right. They, they, they know the nature of the work and that I would extend that same courtesy to them as well. Of course. Um, do you, what kind of pressure or stress does that generate for you when you get that, in our world, we call them sort of the doorknob confessional. Oh, by, by the way, <laughs> much better way of expressing yeah. <laughs> that I did. That was way better. <laughs> and, and those are, you know, we, we find that stressful as well, especially when someone, you know, drops in something really serious that, you know, you can't do justice to it in two minutes. Mm -hmm. So as a family doc with the, you know, with the weight room stacked up with people, mm -hmm. you know, you've got sort of 15, 20 minute windows, uh, to see folks. What's that like for you just sort of as a, as a human being? How do you balance taking care of yourself in terms of making sure that you're not fried by the end of the day? But right. then also, just like you said, it's so hard to get in to see a family doc and to get that appointment it that is. you want to make use of that time and help that person out in that moment. Right. So how do you how do you think through the balance between helping that person out, but also making sure you, is you as a clinician don't get you know plowed under by stress and uh, and burnout? It's It's a great question because I think ultimately, you know, the biggest challenge from a new doctor, especially someone like me with limited amount of experience, you're, it's easy, it's, it's not easy to say no. And you got to learn to start saying no. Right. And when you start taking on work, you have to realize that whatever work you take on, there may be a certain component that you don't expect. And, you know, we always talk about, uh, you know, known knowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns. You don't know what you don't know. So if you're going into a, a work environment, you don't know what could potentially happen. You don't want to take on too much. So if you take on a lot, then you end up getting really overstretched. Or, and and, and, and you're, you, you, you initially had uh, 20 patients on your list and you keep saying yes for people that are calling in for, for, for urgent issues. And, and I hate to say it, you have to learn to say no. Right. And in certain situations, whenever there's, you know, when there's an emergency, then you have no choice but to intervene. That's just the nature of the job. You have to do it. And if it means patients wait, then patients have to wait because that's just the situation. But if something is non-urgent and you can, you can, uh, you can delay it, then ideally what you do is with patients, you say, look, before, as they're getting to their problem and you're coming up with a plan of action, you start to say, okay, we're assessing the situation. But just to let you know in advance, oftentimes it takes a few visits to figure this out. Right. So if patients are aware of that, that, that longitudinal nature of what you guys are going to be doing together, then they're much better prepared to kind of accept that. Right. Rome isn't built in a day and you're not going to fix all psychiatric problems in a very short period of time. Absolutely not. It's the ultimate long game typically. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Right. And as long as patients know, okay, I came in here with a problem and it was my problem. And now when I leave, it's our problem. 
right. it's not just my problem. It's it's a communal thing. We're doing this together. And I kind of learned that trick off of a off a colleague. Uh, you know, you, you learn this. You learn these things off of folks, and you realize that as soon as a patient knows that you're on board and you're gonna you're gonna be there for the long haul, that really establishes that therapeutic alliance. They feel better, right? And then you know, okay, look, we're gonna do this in chunks, and we're gonna see what we can do. And if we can't accomplish this together, we're gonna get some help, provided the help is there. Right. But obviously, you know, I mean, kind of getting back to, you know, being in a rural setting or in a, or dealing with a population that may not have access to, to ancillary services, you're stuck doing that on your own, but you can still do that. You can, you still have to maintain that longitudinal relationship. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You do the best you can with what you have, but, but sometimes it just, you, you fail and, and you still get too stressed and, and you, you've taken on too much. And you think, oh boy, <laughs> how do I, how do I, how do I, how do I do better next time? How do I learn? And, and what you realize is you just can't take on more than you can handle. And you start to learn, learn where that is. And I think as you get more experienced, you, that th those yardsticks change. You start to take on more and more because you're able to. Right. But inevitably, you, you, you got you to gotta know your limitations. That's so beautifully put, Tommy. And I mean, it, that echoes so much what we end up telling our trainees as well is, uh, you know, you have to learn how to say no. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes is really cheap. Very. Right? You can, you can throw out yes is no problem, but then they they... Typically, it's a pay later strategy. Correct. So you can make a problem go away in the next 10 seconds by saying yes to an appointment that you don't actually have time for, but then you end up paying for it. You're kicking the can down the road. Exactly. And yeah, and I think modeling sort of a, a calm, longitudinal, modular approach with clients is like, you know, often clients come in and understandably, they're incredibly distressed, right? They, they want a solution like right now. Right. And it just, listen, it's going to take 10 to 12 sessions. It's going to take me three sessions just to get a handle on what's going on. Who you are and what, right. what, what the issue is. Exactly. And right. it's going to take 10 to 12 to sort of see how the treatment's setting in. We might have to make recommendations beyond that. So, yeah, I, 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 love, I love the way that you sort of frame that up for clients. I think that would, be, that would be really helpful. Given that a lot of folks are coming in, again, and their initial complaint is in that physical department, mm -hmm. are there best practices around testing that you would do to rule out things. I know, you know, there's an ethos of not overwhelming the healthcare system with unnecessary right. testing. Right. I think in general, there's a movement towards not moving away from just a lot of unnecessary testing in general. Absolutely. Just because of the unintended side effects that can, that can cause psychological and people are finding all kinds of things that they don't actually need to be worried about. Right. Absolutely. So from a, how do you navigate that? Like, I mean, clearly you wouldn't want to miss like, for instance, like thyroid problems can sometimes manifest Correct. Uh, with, depression or anxiety, like symptoms, depending on which direction you're going with that. Correct. So how do you weigh through, okay, when do I need to order blood work versus no, nah, I think we're, I, I think I have a sense of what's going on. How do you think through that, Tommy? It, it, that's, that is where you, well, that's where experience really comes into play. You start to get, you know, even you notice if you, you start doing this, you, you see 20 to 30 encounters in a day, even up to 40 on a busy day. And you do that for a year or two, you start to, you start to kind of see patterns. Now, you know, there's such thing as clinical gestalt, and it's legitimate. When you're dealing with a clinician who's had 20 or 30 years of experience, they often have an, a sense of what's going on. And and you learn that over time. And I don't have, I can't say, I can't profess to be learning all that. I mean, I, I can't I can't say I, I've acquired all those skills, but I'm starting to see some patterns. Right. And when I see those patterns, I start to think, okay, there's certain conditions that we call masquerades where we know, okay, there are certain conditions that we typically see that 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 might mask as a mental health issue. And, you know, thyroid is a big one. You know, we do kind of checks on di uh, check for diabetes or anemia. You know, these these metabolic issues are, are things that are common, but are often uh, mistaken for mental health issues. So when you consider 
when you consider that, you start to think, okay, uh, whenever somebody comes in with with often fatigue symptoms, those 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 uh, those those generalized vague symptoms that you can't really put on any one condition, that's when I typically do that screen. And even with mental health issues, if they come in, you know, complaining about mental health issues right away, this still doesn't preclude the medical workup. So you don't necessarily ignore the medicine part, even when they're talking about the psychiatric problem. Right. So 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 oftentimes. You're doing the medical workup even after the fact. You think, okay, we're, we're initially, this person has been being managed for diabetes or anxiety by another physician for, for quite a while. And you realize, hang on a minute, maybe there's another component to this. And it doesn't mean they don't have anxiety, depression, or have some sort of mental health issue. But the, the diagnosis that we might be missing might also be contributing to that. So just because you have a thyroid problem doesn't mean you don't have anxiety, depression. And just because you have anxiety, depression doesn't mean you, have a thyroid, you don't have a thyroid problem. Right. They, can be, they can be making each other worse. So that you always have to keep an eye on, on, is there something medically wrong that we can optimize? So, so I, I never, I never kind of, I'm quick to do a metabolic screen, especially blood work on, on someone that has those fatigue type symptoms. But do I order imaging right away? No, I don't. I, I don't do that kind of thing until there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a clinical need for it. That being said, I mean, I've involved, I've been involved in cases of folks, with, you know, presenting with personality changes and, and, and uh, changes in character uh, as documented by the family. And, and uh, you know, as, as a locum physician, oftentimes I'm, I'm meeting patients for the first time. I haven't established that long-term relationship. Right. So I'm meeting everybody for the first time. I'm, I'm meeting the patient for the first time. I don't know what, what they're normally like. And then I'm getting collateral history from the family telling me that this is a significant departure from their baseline. And that's when you think, okay, maybe, maybe head imaging is, is necessary. And, and, you know, we've picked up you know, I've picked up lesions like that, you know, very rarely, but you, you sometimes see a medical issue right. that's being masked as, as, a, as, as, a, uh, as a psychiatric problem. But uh, that kind of thing is rare, but I would say there's a huge crossover between metabolic issues and, and, and mental health concerns and how they make each other worse. Absolutely. Do you have some sense of how they make each other worse? You know, maybe even beyond, is there organic interplay between them? I'm also picturing maybe a behavioral component as well, where if someone's depressed and a diabetic, their motivation is low, their energy is low. Correct. They, they may just not test their, their sugar as much as they Correct. should. They don't administer the insulin when they should. Correct. So are those, are those the kind of interplay that you Absolutely. see? Absolutely. Especially when it comes to chronic illness. If you're a type one diabetic and you're having to stab yourself with needles multiple times a day, there are some folks that just don't adapt well to that. And to be honest, maybe I wouldn't either. Right. I don't know what that's like. And if I had to stab myself a few times a day, I'm not sure I'd be okay with that. Right. And uh, so oftentimes having to manage that illness will lead to a chronic mental health concern because they're just having to deal with this frustrating issue. And then you add to the fact that maybe this type 1 diabetic hasn't been having very good sugar control. So as a result, when their, their, uh, their A1C, which is a blood test that we do to kind of check for the average, uh, kind of their, their long-term compliance uh, with, with diabetes management and how bad their, their diabetes control can be, you know, as, as their control gets worse, their, their energy levels might get worse and that might spiral their mental health issue. So ultimately, there's there's a huge crossover. I mean, you can say the same thing about thyroid problems. When you're when you've got hypothyroidism, oftentimes that can have symptoms that are very similar to to a mental health issue. So you fix the you resolve the thyroid issue, and you talk to them later, and you think, okay, wow, they're, they're really quite a bit better. So it really was just the 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 thyroid, and and then uh, and it's a lot of cause and effect, right? So you you, right. you change something, you, you improve their lab abnormality, 
And then they feel better and then you realize, okay, there wasn't really a mental health issue. It was really metabolic. But then when you fix their energy levels, but they still have a mental health concern, that's when you start to think, okay, maybe there's the, they're, right. they're really kind of working together here. So it, it's, it's a challenge and, and it does require many visits of getting to know somebody and, 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 and uh, kind of following them before you get that idea. But you know, as physicians, we have a tendency to chase labs and, and try to treat labs, and we, we really have to fight that. You know, you got to treat right. the person, not the lab. Right. And I think we over, we really aggressively try to keep, you know, numbers in a particular parameter, set of parameters, only to find out that doesn't really get us anywhere. So I think there's a, there's a healthy balance between the two, right? So, yep. you know, following their labs and making sure that, that metabolically or, or that their health concerns are all addressed, physical health concerns, that is, um, and, and balancing that mental health uh, need, I guess. Right. There's a, just as a brief aside, it came up to me when you're uh, talking about the metabolic piece. There's a, psychi a psychiatrist, Dr. Charles Raison. Mm -hmm. um, he's down in the States mm -hmm. and um, doing a lot of really interesting work about underlying inflammatory processes that may be active in mental health. Interesting. And he shows this graph of basically like all the autoimmune inflammatory conditions that are on, not, not just psychological, of no, course, but no. like that are on the rise over time. Right. And long story short, um, some interesting... Uh, hypotheses around the depletion and lack of diversity in the microbiome. Interesting. Ultimately yeah. leading to immune dysfunction, yeah. ultimately leading to inflammatory runaway processes, ultimately leading to a lot of the things that we see now uh, clinically, whether it be mental health or physical. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's just, I think there's just these interesting emergent uh, inflammatory narratives that are coming out around mental health. Absolutely. And I mean, look, we're, we're just kind of scratching the surface here. You oh, know? yeah. We're really... There's got to be some biological interplay with all of this, inevitably. I mean, there's a reason why medications work for some folks. Right. You know, and and, and if these medications work beyond placebo, then there's got to be some chemical some, some chemical involvement. So, you know, might there be a test in the future where it's more of a chemical test or a biochemical test to kind of assess some of this? That's, that's very interesting. And, and, you, and gut bacteria certainly has to have, a, has to, has to have some impact. I mean, oh, yeah. if you consider IBS as a, as a condition, I mean— I mean, think about that. That's that's a functional bowel issue. That's, you know, there's no test to really mark for that. But yet it, it comes up with objective symptoms. There is oh, a yeah. change in symptoms. And, and it, it co-mingles with uh, mental health concerns all the time. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we often think of the gut as the second brain, right? That enteric nervous system has its own own personality in, in, in a way. I'll well, we use that term very loosely. <laughs> Some personalities are more abrasive than others. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, having worked your way through some of the physical pieces that you would need to investigate, as you just nicely outlined, right? and it comes back, you know, things are basically okay, or you've addressed the things that can be addressed from that perspective. Right. How do you then think through treatment? Um, and then... I think you alluded to this before. Access to resources probably would inform your thinking for sure. You betcha. Um, so the major wings of of Treatment and mental health, of course, are pharmacological. Right. You can look at a number of compounds there. You've got right. the psychotherapeutic right. angle as well. How do you think through that? Do you have, is there a best practice? Or yeah. Is there an algorithm? How, how do you, how do you how think through choose? that? How do you choose? Yeah. You know, you know there's, there's obviously way too many medications for us to really kind of have a really strong grasp of how they all work. Right. Inevitably. So we're always kind of taught in residencies to get comfortable with a few major classes of medications. So with all the major classes, have a few different medications that tend to work. Uh, that they tend to have certain properties. You know, there's certain, you know, for example, if you're looking at SSRI medications, you're looking at certain medications that might help with sleep, others that might help boost energy, or, you know, they might have other uh, side effects that they might be called, but it's side effects that we might want to be intended um, where it might benefit them. So, so you know, we have 
every doc has their own kind of comfort levels of what medications use, but inevitably it takes, I think, uh, kind of a multimodal approach, you know, and, and it's up to the patient's comfort level. You know, in an ideal world, I'd like to have a counselor in play. I'd love to have a psychiatry, a psychiatry opinion. And, and if there's a medication that's warranted, I'd like to suggest one. But that's not always the case. Right. And there, you know, you get some folks that come in and you know for a fact they're never going to open up to somebody. Even getting them to open up to to me as the clinician is a challenge. And I'm, it's basically the clinical equivalent of pulling teeth. Right. And those folks may not be as amenable to counseling, you know, and and. Even the, the very thought of it kind of makes their face cringe and you think, oh boy, okay, so there's one big tool, the, the biggest tool that I would prefer that they try uh, is now out of, my, out of my hands. So now I got to come up with a medication or, 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 or clarify the diagnosis if I don't have one uh, to best manage. That's a, that's, that's a hard one, but, you know, access to counseling, I think is the biggest the biggest issue I have with some yeah. patients, whether it be a lack of insurance, a lack of financial resources to cover because it is expensive. Absolutely. Yep. And I do, I also do warn patients too that, you know, it's the same thing as finding a doctor, you know, it's a bit of professional dating. You got to find the right dance partner in order for you to be open, open enough to, to discuss your issues. And if you can't open yourself up and you can't be vulnerable in that scenario, you're, you're not going to really improve because we don't get to the source of the problem. Right. And sometimes it can take a few tries, just like trying a few different medications. But I find, you know, at least you can get patients on board and, and keep them on board if you warn them of this in advance. Right. If, you know, we always talk about informed consent, and, and it's very hard to truly inform people as to the risks and benefits of the treatments that they're having. You know, if you were to mention every side effect, every potential complication, you'll often start no therapies. But you do have to mention, you do have to let patients know that there's going to be a bit of an exploration process. So sometimes counseling is going to be what's best for you. Sometimes it's right. medications, but it's going to take some trial and error in many cases. And there, there are times you're going to, we're going to fail. Right. But as long as you kind of keep persisting and, and finding a solution more often than not, we can find some improvement uh, if we keep trying, you know, and for most problems, there are some right. problems that are very difficult to treat. And, and obviously uh, that would certainly require a specialist intervention, but from a primary care perspective, right. Many conditions can be approved if we try a few different things, but it's usually a combination I find is the most successful, you know, and whether it be starting with an SSRI or SNRI or, or even a, you know, even a medication that's used off label, you know, um, you can, you can usually find something to help. I've seen a big increase in the number of clients who are depressed coming in with a Vyvanse or, uh, or, or a Concerta, things like that. Right. And it's being used, I'm, I'm assuming technically off-label to deal with the, sort of, you know, what we call the neurovegetative kind of symptoms, right? Like lethargy, right. low energy, right. low motivation, right. anhedonia to some extent. I mean, these medications do appear to help in, in some instances. Is that becoming a more common prescribing practice? Well, we're seeing it now. We're often not, I think, I mean, this is just, you know, for certainly my own personal practice and some of my colleagues, I haven't seen a lot of a lot of folks using it for that purpose. It's right. really more, you know, I think there's this, this a stigma around, you know, stimulant medications is a controlled substance. So a lot right. of physicians, uh, primary care physicians are very weary about starting a medication without some sort of 
opinion from a, a, a clinician, another a, a clinician in the, in the in the world of psychology. You know, we want a psychologist's opinion or a psychiatrist to clarify the diagnosis before we initiate a medication like that. In many cases, right? Uh, you know, we we do our questionnaires, the cadres, and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, you know, we you know we're not the experts, so so we're often continuing the medication. We're not initiating it. Right. But I am seeing that it is it is there, and I'm also seeing too with certain palliative care patients as a kind of way of boosting them up, giving them a bit more energy yep. in the midst of the cocktail of other medications to help control their pain and other symptoms. So, so you know, I'd say I'd see it more in, I've seen it more a bit more in palliative care than I've seen kind of as a, as a boost, as an ad, adjunct to a, a depressive symptom. Interesting. Usually what I'm seeing is surveillance for is for anti, uh, you know, attention deficit disorder and ADHD. Right. Okay. So, so ultimately, um, you know, I haven't seen a ton of that, but I mean, it's there. It's certainly there. We're just not starting it. Quick question for you, uh, among the many questions I have for you. <laughs> Fire away. Around the stimulant piece, my m way of practicing has been, um, you know, we especially you see young folks come in who are having pr problems in school mm -hmm. and, you know, often, often longstanding, going back to like, you know, grade two, three, whatever, right? Certainly. And which is typical of ADHD. Right. They're in university, they're having trouble focusing, whatnot. Mm -hmm. I'll, do a, I'll do a screen, uh, which I'll make a copy and give them. Mm -hmm. And then I'll also write a, a brief letter mm -hmm. to the family doc saying, dear so-and-so, we share this client. Um, it's, it's my impression that this person may benefit from a trial of a stimulant medication to see if it can improve attentional symptoms, whatnot. Right. Is that the kind of, you know, just, just while we have the benefit of the family doc's perspective here, it. would that typically oh. be enough to facilitate a, 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 Absolutely. a pres prescription? <laughs> what we're often looking for, especially, you know, we're in the world of 10 minute consults. Right. You know, we got to go in, we got to get in, we got to get in, got to get out. And, right. and in order for us to actually see enough patients in, patients in a day to actually manage a practice of any reasonable size, you got to do things quickly. Right. We're looking for one-liners, bottom lines. Yep. So when you see a consultant report saying, this is what I think they have, and this is what I want you to do. Try this. If this doesn't work, try this. If that doesn't work, tell them to come back and see me. Yep. We see that, and we have instant comfort in that. <laughs> okay. No, I can't. Can I say that the opinion is always accurate? No, obviously. They're, they're trying things out, you know, and right. it's, it's an opinion. But it gives us a starting place. And it gives the patient a certain sense of confidence as well. So you say, look, we've checked over, we've checked it over with the uh, with with the uh, with the consultant. You've you've spoken to them, and and this is what they want to do. And is this something you'd be interested in? Now, do you have any other questions in, in regards to you know what this treatment might entail? And then based on that, you have a plan. You know, I hate to quote the A team, but I love it when a plan comes together, right? And and, and uh, you know, uh, Tom, you can you can quote the A team all day long on this uh, podcast. Not a pit of the fool, yeah. but but uh, but ultimately, <laughs> you know, plans are, uh, you know, when 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 there's a plan in place, there's a certain sense of comfort, I think, for a lot of patients. Yeah, and I think I think we also feel that way too. I think all humans are like that, right? I mean, right. Knowing, okay, there's a plan. Is there a plan? Okay, good. I, I know where I'm going with this. That right. helps us. That helps us in, in ways we can't, I can't even, I can't even describe. So at least we know, okay, oh, we got it. We got it. We, we got something. We got a direction. I will say uh, the odd time that I do reach out to a family doc on the phone, um, I've always found them to be extremely receptive yeah. and I really do make an effort to keep it to that sort of two, literally two, three minutes, Right. just land as much critical information as I can, then get in and get out. Cause right. I appreciate they're squeezing it in between right. calls. But I, I do find if you respect the family doc's time, mm -hmm. they, they will take your calls. Absolutely. If you, you're, you're a, a lifeline to us. And, and when we can, we can get that, 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 that other set of eyes on it and a set of expertise that we don't possess. Right. It takes the worry off our shoulders. Right. So we say, look, I have to, I have to worry about a lot less. Yes. You know, and and I know this is, this has already been covered by a consultant, so it's really more about answering questions. Right. 
when we're having to sit there and, and, and try to convince patients to start a treatment, it takes us a lot more time. So, so ultimately that's, that's incredibly helpful. So I, you know, the, uh, if, if you have an opinion, tell us, we want to hear your opinion, you yeah. know, cause your opinion counts. You know, it really does matter. Now, now sometimes uh, we might ask for more clarification. We might we might say, okay, well, listen, we've tried this already. Is there, is you, have to, you got something else for us? Um, but but, wow, I uh, I love it when I see reports like that. Perfect. That's it's so nice to know that that is a potentially viable strategy, both for the you know to help the client out, but the, also help the primary care physician Absolutely. out as well, just to make everyone's life easier. It's hard enough working in healthcare mm-hmm. as is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a way, sometimes clients don't always have a window into, of course, why would they, you know, it's not their concern. Uh, would they know? Why right, would they? right. I'm learning about this stuff myself. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, one man, this, this would probably be a whole podcast in itself, but one area it, around medication that always feels very tangly mm-hmm. are the benzodiazepines. Yes. And I, I see so many versions of strategies around employing these tools mm-hmm. ranging from no, never mm-hmm. all the way to, I, I would say negligence uh, right. w- with respect to how they're prescribed. Right. And then also, you know, we as psychologists have very specific take on how, when, you know, uh, why these compounds would be used. Excellent. So, I'm curious about that. Yeah. So maybe we can have a bit of a chat about yeah. that. I, I'm, I'm curious from, because I think so many clients come in uh, especially when they're in, in acute distress, Correct. they're either asking for benzos either with in, in a way that they know they are or not, mm-hmm. or their behavior is pulling for that, for that in terms of a prescription, in terms of like this person's in acute distress. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking, you know, I, I just love to get your your take on this. Uh, I think if someone has lost a, a child or something, right. some, some acute massive life stressor, right. you know, would benzos have a role, a, an appropriate role there in terms of helping just the person to get their legs under them to deal with, with life or whatnot? So I guess just a very open-ended question, Tommy, yeah. like how do you think through the prescriptions of benzodiazepines given all of their risks? And just to make it really clear for folks, the risks being physical and psychological dependence, right? ultimately. I mean, we could go on and on, but in a nutshell, those are the Absolutely. major concerns. Addiction, right? I mean, right. inevitably, especially with the opioid crisis right now, it's, it's front and center, and at least right. people are aware that there is a huge addictive potential to certain medications. And, and there's that crutch of, of, of uh, being stuck on something like that and, and the difficulty of getting off something of that nature, right? right? It's a very hard thing to... To, to control and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be medications. Things are addictive personalities, addictive uh, afflictions can 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 be for anything really. But medications right. certainly have a particular hold, and benzodiazepines are, are one of the uh, one of those ones that are in the news a lot, and they're commonly used. Uh, you know, to give you that exact scenario, I've I've had that encounter more, on more than one occasion, and and in some situations I do give it right. You know, and and but at the same time, I let the patient run the show. I give them the choice and I kind of come at it from a perspective of, I'm not telling you what to do. Here are your options, right? You know, I, I kind of liken it to being a, uh, a server at a, at a fast food restaurant, which I had done. <laughs> would you like your Happy Meal? Would you like your filet fish Would you like your Big Mac with the, uh, with the large drink? Yeah. And I kind of go through the risks and benefits of therapies. And when I talk about benzodiazepines, I say, well, look, this isn't something we often use as a long-term strategy personally. This is something I tend to use for, for more acute scenarios. And I let them know in very strong terms the addictive nature of these and right. the negative connotation with some of these medications. What, where could this lead to? And if there's any family history of, of that or personal history of that, that's when alarm bells are raised and you start to think, okay, is this the appropriate treatment for them? But you do need to investigate that before you start that treatment. Right. 
you know, I, I've had great success, you know, using it over a very short term with, I mean, I don't like to name names on medications, but, uh, but, but, you know, there are, there are obviously the common benzodiazepines that, that work very well for, for, for those extremely distressing situations for short term. So in that situation, I'll prescribe a very short course, yep. maybe five to 10 pills. And I'm doing a very, very close follow-up with some of these folks just to see how they're doing. Right. Furthermore, you always have to kind of counsel on the other things that they might be doing. So you never want to combine these medications with alcohol. And and if you kind of gets back to that initial that initial point where I was making with the plan. If somebody knows that there's a plan here, this is what we're gonna do, you know, and this is what could potentially happen. If the people are able aware of the pitfalls before they go into the treatment, then you're less likely to fall into those pitfalls. Right. The same thing could be said for opioids, you know, after an acute injury or surgery or, you know, those are the situations where you might use opioids. You say, look, here's a situation. We're going to give you these medications for a very short period of time. Here are the risks and benefits. I will not be prescribing these long term, you know, for the most part. This is something that we're just using to help you get over the hump. And, and in that context, I, I've used it quite a bit. Do I prescribe long-term benzodiazepines? I can't say that I do. <laughs> it's not yep. something I do routinely. And frankly, a lot of that's because I'm a locum. You know, I don't have right. ownership over patients for more than a year at a time. You know, the most I've looked after a practice would be, you know, close to a year, really. And inevitably, uh, you know, you're having, having to re-prescribe medications that some of these folks have been on. So, you know, I get folks that, that have been on a type of benzodiazepine to help them sleep. And then they've been on the same dose for the last 25, 30 years yep. or however long they've been on it. Yep. You know, as a locum, it's hard for me to come in and say, well, maybe you shouldn't be on these medications. Right. They're not going to listen to me at all. Their doctor is, their, their original doctor or the doctor's away has, has kept them on these medications and it's worked well for them. And, and from that perspective too, if they've been on the same medication, same dose, and they're not abusing, you know, I, I keep an open mind, you know, maybe that's the right treatment for them, but yep. it's not my, my standard of practice to try and put somebody on something like that long-term. Right. So, um, you know, <laughs> it was a long-winded way of answering your question, but, but, but. No, but that's, that's the kind of detail that I think I'm, you know, we're all looking for as psychologists is to know, you know, uh, obviously you're, you're, you're one family physician. You're not going to be able to encompass. Generalize. People, right. Yeah. Exactly. But it's, uh, it's such an interesting and, and valuable window into how, you know, at least one family physician thinks through that. Mm-hmm. And that seems like such a, uh, a helpful way of thinking about it. I'll just mention for anyone who might be listening, who's interested as psychologists, the pattern of prescription and usage that we find to be the most problematic is when it's prescribed as a PRN. Right. Sort of more in that on-demand kind of status. Right. Uh, because what it does, it negatively reinforces the use of that medication. So, you know, people are panicking. They take their, they take their clonazepam or t- more typically Ativan, mm-hmm. and it makes the panic attack go away. Of course, that feels good. So, subsequently, it makes it more likely that they would use a benzodiazepine in the future. I see. As opposed to maybe leveraging some of the more psychological strategies that might be available to them. Interesting. It also undermines their ability to, uh, their confidence uh, and, and their ability to cope with those wow. symptoms, right? So you see, you see clients, and Tommy, I've seen this. They're they're panicking, and against my advice, they they take the uh, Ativan or whatever out of their purse or their wallet, wherever they keep it. Even when it's in their hand, they start to calm down. And when they take it, they're like, ah. Oh. And the, you know, it hasn't even yeah. gone through first pass metabolism. Not and, like not not even close. It's not even close, right? But yet it provides a relief, so it immediately gives you a window into what it's doing uh, from a from a psychological perspective. So when we have clients on benzos. And it's in the population I work with, it's not totally uncommon veterans with PTSD, right. real significant symptoms. Right. Uh, we prefer it to see to see it prescribed. And almost like I, I'll, I'll tell clients, like you take it like a vitamin, you take it in the morning, mm-hmm. you take it in the evening, right. you know, 0.5 or whatever the, the dosage is. And you do not take it on an on-demand right. fashion to address exactly because it sets up that 
Interesting. That, that, that dependent pattern. So I, I do think there is a role in, in more severe anxiety presentations. I also think, Tommy, there's some folks just from uh, using sort of old school language here, but from a big five personality inventory perspective, like uh, neuroticism, right. some people's autonomic nervous systems are just so rammed right. that it's suffering. See. You know, and and I think they could, you know, they, and I'm talking maybe two percent of the population here, right, right, where they're just so activated that they're there's there's pain and then there's suffering, right, right. Life, right. life is painful. I, I, everybody has it. Everybody yep. has it, yep. right? Psychological pain, physical pain, absolutely. And it's problematic when people want. I mean, you you would know this uh, for sure that North Americans consume like 80% of the world's pain medications or <laughs> something outrageous, right? Unbelievable. So we yeah. have different expectations about that. But anyway, right. Right. I'm, the, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm certainly being long-winded here, but the idea is, yeah, if people are going to take benzos, uh, I love the idea that it's temporary, mm-hmm. situationally oriented. Right. If it's going to be long-term, it's got to be not PRN. Interesting. On a more regular like administration basis, but even then it's a slippery slope, right? That's, you know, the PRN aspect of it is fascinating to me because honestly- you know, I think that's how most of us prescribe it. Right. Take this as needed. Right. And I think, you know, for folks that are medication hesitant, you know, those folks, you know, I think in many cases they're saying, okay, well, I'm very wary of this medication. I just have it in my cabinet. I don't use it. Right. Almost kind of like the PCA, patient controlled analgesia studies. Right. Which show right. that folks that are on those machines, those pumps where you can dispense your own medication, provided there's no drug abuse history. They end up using less medications. Right. But that's very different from from what you've just described. You know, the idea of them putting the pill in their hand and getting that instant relief, knowing that it's coming. Yep. That changes my that changes my perspective a bit here because you start to think, well, hang on a minute. In in let's say we were to go back to that initial example of that that that, that patient who's lost a child or lost right. a loved one in a very acute setting. Instead of using it as a peer and just using it regularly, you're gonna use it for these days. And we're going to stop you and we're going to see how you go. Right. But to your point, like you have to, you have to experience that, that, that those symptoms in order for you to conquer them eventually. Exactly. And that's if you're right. using that as that, that way of stopping that, you'll never learn that behavior. And that's, 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 uh, that's fascinating. I love, that's very interesting. Yeah. It, Cause you end up trading one problem for another. Yeah. Right. Is, is, is what ends, ends up happening in, in, yeah. in my experience anyway, as a, as a clinician. So a good, I mean, a way, a good one of the ways that I think through therapy or the message that I tell clients, because I, I often have what I would, you know, affectionately call my tools and strategies clients come in. They're like, I need tools and strategies. Right. Right. They, they're looking for their anxiety or depression to be essentially alleviated immediately because that's the cultural narrative, right? Like right. If, you're, if you have strong feelings, yeah. unpleasant feelings, then there's something wrong. When it might just be that it's life going on. Right. So the metaphor we use is, or the, the characterization is, therapy is designed, is not designed to convince you that the world is safe. It's designed to convince you that you're courageous and brave enough and strong enough to deal with it. Interesting. Which is a very different lens, right? Yeah. Uh, then the, so the, so the benzo use often has that anxiety symptoms are dangerous. They're unpleasant. You need to make them go away. Let's take a benzo right, right now. So it, it can often work contradictory to the person's self-efficacy and sense that they that they can develop tools to deal with that stuff. Wow. Ah, yeah. That's, <laughs> It's a, you see, this is, this is why these talks are useful. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm so, glad we're, we're, I'm, I'm so glad we're having this wow. kind of a conversation because I think wow. this is probably one of the most 
I would say like the, the number one, say, quote unquote, conversation I end up having with family docs. Mm. And it's, the education goes both ways, right? I mean, mm. I've learned so much about family docs, the way they think through it. I'm learning a lot the right. way in terms of the way you think through it. Right. And we just have our psychologist lens, which is not the only lens but or, or a, a complete lens, but it's, it's just another angle in on the, on the we're, we're trading one problem for another sometimes. Right, right. One thing I was, I was wondering about, and I think uh, this would be useful for any clients who might be listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm. If someone's coming in for their appointment, right. you know, they've got typically, what kind of a window are they looking at? <laughs> 10, 15, 20 minutes? <laughs> Usually uh, it could be 10 to 15. Okay. In some scenarios, 20. Okay. So let, let's say, let's go with 10 minutes just so we sure. can optimize as much as possible. Right. What would the... Um, you know, someone who wanted to be a good steward of their mental health right? and and respect the, the small window of time that they have there. What would you recommend to a client in that situation in terms of preparing for their appointment? And then in terms right. of what, what's the information you actually need right. in order to help the client? Because I know, I think a lot of clients have a, especially if they're anxious, right? it's like Dr. Thomas needs to know everything Correct. about what's going on. Correct. Otherwise he won't be able to, to help me. Yes. Right. And, and, and what they may not realize is in aggregate, you've seen you have so much experience that you're picking up on subtle pattern recognitions and probably within 30, 40 seconds, right. a minute, right. you have a real, you're, you're 85% of the way there right. in terms of, you know, knowing what needs to happen. Right. So for the, for the client who, who really wants to make best use of that time, how would you guide them in terms of structuring that conversation with the family doc? Absolutely. That's, that's, that's a great question. Cause I think, <laughs> I hate to give patients homework in that regard. But sometimes that's kind of what's, what's required. Right. And oftentimes after that first visit, you know, they'll come in and, you know, they're anxious, they're stressed, they're disorganized in their thinking. And that's normal. We're all that way. You know, I think if anyone's panicked, nobody's thinking normally of or course. clearly. I mean, some people can, I guess. Yep. I can't say I count myself in, in that category. You know, when, when folks aren't doing their best. As clinicians, we need to be more patient. So, 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 to some degree, if a, if you're feeling rushed by a physician, that's our fault. <laughs> that's, right. That's our responsibility, and we need to be better. And and I can't say you know some some physicians are better at, at, at this kind of thing than others. Inevitably, some are better listeners than others. Some have more expertise in these things. So, it's a bit different for each patient because it depends on who who they're dealing with. You know, some clinicians, you don't have to go and prepare. They'll guide you through it. Others, you need to be, you know, they're going to be quick and curt and you got to be, you got to get in, get out. What I'd encourage patients to do is to really give some thought as to what's bothering them on what they think the source of the problem is. Right. We're often trained as in, in, in our residencies to kind of ask and to make this more patient-centered. Like, what's bothering you? What do you think the issue is? And what do you think would make this better? And if you do that, then you're more likely to come up with solutions on your own. Because the solutions you come up with on your own, often with the help of somebody else, are the ones you're most likely to stick to. Absolutely. If yep. I tell you stop smoking and you're not ready to stop smoking, you're not gonna you're not gonna listen to that. Right. Why would you? But if you realize that hang on a minute, I want to stop smoking, now we're now we're getting somewhere. Now we can do something about this. But until they're willing to figure out, until patients are really under, trying to understand how they can help themselves or what they think would help them best, or how do you think I could help you best, you're not going to really get anywhere. Right. Now, sometimes, you know, I, I don't want patients to come in with a polished, you know, a polished set of answers. I don't want to hear everything wrong. How do you, uh, straight from the horse's mouth. 
So oftentimes in that first visit, they come in, they're in an acute crisis or an acute situation. We kind of get a sense of what's going on initially and we say, okay, we're going to do a bit of a follow-up. We're going to get you to come back, you know, ideally in a short period of time. And what I want you to do is think about it in this way. This is your homework. I want you to come up with, and I use this for a lot of conditions. It doesn't have to just be psychiatric problems. Right. It could be physical problems. We call it a symptom journal or a symptom diary. <laughs> you know, dear diary, tell me what you think, you know, what makes us better? What makes us worse? What's causing it? What's stressing you out? Have you encountered this in the past? What's worked for you in the past? These types of things. Right. And sometimes it's really hard to do. Sometimes the nature of the problem, you know, assuming assuming mental competency, because there 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 are, there's there are conditions where there's psychosis, and there's you know, good luck trying to reason with that. The very purpose of uh, the, the 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 very the very condition itself makes it impossible for you to to, to do this properly. Mm-hmm. But for those that can, that's that's typically the best way for forward. Is is you have to self reflect. You need to know what you need. Well, how, how how best can we help you? Right. Is counseling something that's interesting to you? Is medication something that'd be interesting to you? You know. What do you? What, have you seen somebody else deal with something that you're interested in? And oftentimes, right. you know, patients have ideas. You know, and nowadays with with Doctor Google, which which can be good or bad thing depending on, on oh depending sure on the person, yeah, it's just a tool, right? It's, it's a, a tool. It's, it depends depends completely on how it's used. Absolutely, a hammer can be useful. Can also be very dangerous, right? right. So, uh, I think I, I think you know, patients often come in with an idea of what they want. They've already known, right? And especially folks that have dealt with uh, certain issues before. So, so they're often, they come in with a plan, but for, for, for folks that are experiencing symptoms for the first time, I I encourage you to kind of figure out and try and, you know, look at your situation and figure out what's working for you and what's not, what's the cause of it. Mm -hmm. And and what, what do you, what are you hoping for? What are you expecting? Right. You know, and when folks realize their expectations are met, then they feel like they've gotten good care. Right. Now, you know, obviously the, the, the the goal here isn't to give good care. It's to get get them better necessarily, you know, right. Good care comes with, you know, helping people improve, but ultimately the primary goal is to help people live a better life. Tell me how much of the time is your counsel ultimately to say someone's, you know, freshly going through a divorce or unemployment or some sort of, you know, uh, understandably stressful life situation. Mm -hmm. How much of the time, you know, is your approach essentially sort of gentle reassurance and just a suggestion that, hey, you know, this is a, you're having a normal reaction to a really difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we let this play out for a little bit? And, um, you know, of course, your sleep's a little bit disrupted. We don't mm-hmm. want to get you on a sleep med right away mm-hmm. because that has its own problems. Or, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, you know, a medication, you know, we don't want to medicate life away here. Mm-hmm. How much of the time do you go the route of gentle reassurance or do you, do you typically feel aligned with always giving some sort of a treatment mm-hmm. or do you feel pressured to, to provide a treatment much in the same way that people feel a pressure? To, uh, I've, I've heard family docs mention, you know, people come in, there's no clear indication for an antibiotic, but clients are pulling for it big time. Right. 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 So what's, what's the dynamic or in terms of, I mean, I, I would imagine as a family doc, you're sort of the secret lives of people yes. <laughs> that you're basically dealing with. Yes. Right? Yes. So given you're just dealing with so much life, you know, what's your thinking around that? Good question, because that's a common presentation, you know. Right. With, with divorce rates being incredibly high, these are these are difficult situations, you know. Right. And 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 oftentimes, you know, what folks are, are after is just somebody hear them out. Right. And and oftentimes, I used to think, okay, well, we gotta we gotta provide some sort of off service or, or, or treat them or, or offer something. Yeah. Half the time, it's just the right thing to do is just stop talking and let right. them talk. Hear them out. And you hear them out and you think, okay, this is a tough situation. And after you've basically heard everything they need to hear, everything they need to say, you know, yeah. they've, they've, they've bared their soul, they've expressed everything, you start to think, okay, 
kind of gets back to my initial point. How, how can I help you? Like, what do you think you need in this? Because it sounds like, it sounds like this is a tough situation. And I can't tell you these medications are going to fix that problem. Meds don't fix everything. You know? Right. They, they, might, they might cover something. They might mask something. Right. But it's not going to erase the, the, the hardships that you're dealing with, whether it be separating a family or not seeing, you know, if there's a custody battle with children. This is where things get really challenging. And you start to say, okay, pills don't fix everything. And life happens. And if you, if, if, you know, if you medicate every time something bad happens, you'll never experience the worst parts of this or the best parts. Right. It can, it can dull both, you know. And it, it, it does. That's, that's the gripe of a lot of clients, right? They're like the dynamic range of my emotions have been so compressed that yeah. I don't really care about anything. Either way. Oh, yeah, what, a, what an awful thing. What an awful, what an awful, right. uh, awful, uh, awful concept, right? So I, I don't tend to push medications. I, I tend to try to encourage people to try and work through the problem. And, and not everyone needs to see a counselor. Some people, their version of counseling is sitting down with a friend. Right. You know, over a coffee and just laying it out. For other people, it's an exercise routine. Other people, it's martial arts classes, or art or poetry, you know, whatever it may be, whatever right. you use to kind of center yourself or to meditate, whether it be meditation itself, but, you know, meditation doesn't have to be, you know, the, the standard practice. You know, right. some people r meditate when they run or when they bike. Whatever therapy works for you, I encourage that. And that's something I often I often bring up and I say, okay, well, what do you do for fun? Like, what 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 gets you out of, what gets you to your happy place? Yep. And I often tell people that when I'm about to take their blood pressure, go to your happy place. Yeah. <laughs> Hang out here for a few minutes. <laughs> I'll come back. I'm going to turn the machine on and then we'll yeah. see where you're at. Yeah. You know? And the same thing, same thing occurs to this. Where was your happy place? What do you do? And, you know, oftentimes it's, it's as simple as giving them a bit of a signal. So they have a few days to try and address their affairs, you know, figure out what they need to do. Right. Where you, where you get into a bit of a pitfall is when folks come in and ask for large periods of time off and you think, okay. You know, you 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 need time away from work, and you absolutely do. Or there's something at work that's potentially adding more complications to your stresses at sure, home. Sure, yeah. Avoiding work isn't going to fix that problem because you're going to have to go back at some point. So, so that's a that's kind of a different challenge. But right. oftentimes, I often start with saying, well, "Let's give you a bit of a break. Let's see where you're at. Let's let's give you a few days to kind of sort yourself out. Come back, yeah. Gather yourself, and let's let's figure out where you where you need to go from there. So, usually on that first visit, I, I'm trying to avoid therapies. I just try to figure out what they turn to when they're happy and how do I, how do I encourage that? Right. You know, how do I push them to do that or, or you know, guide them that way, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm no expert in that person. They're the expert in that person. Right. right. They know what, what makes them happy. So you really just got to make them understand what makes them happy. Right. You, know, you help them reconnect with what they probably, I mean, most of us know how to heal ourselves inherently. Absolutely. Um, you know, we lose track when we're stressed out, when we're panicked, we get that tunnel vision, we lose track of those things, right? Or they, or even worse, they feel disposable. Right. You know, people don't exercise at precisely the times in their life when they should. Right. Right. But it always feels disposable. It's like, oh, I'm busy. But it's like, you know, if you're not, if you're putting the cart before the horse, you will end up paying the price. Absolutely. Uh, eventually. I mean, if I could just put, put a plug in for anyone who's listening. Yeah. Exercise. Exercise. It's, it's the most powerful treatment that you or I would, would have in terms of recommending to, to, to folks. I mean, there's the most evidence around it. It's the most robust, easiest to implement, least side effects. Everyone should be. Everybody should. Yep. If you can push a half a pound of weight in, in a wheelchair, you should be doing that. Right. You know, whatever you can do, you need to do that and expand a bit more and keep doing it. Because right. humans need to move. We need to exercise. We need to push ourselves. Absolutely. And I think that this, this – 
you get a lot of this too with when it comes to musculoskeletal injuries. You know? Yeah. To kind of bring it to medicine here a bit, you get a lot of physical aches and pains, and you get folks coming in looking for a medication or a quick fix, and you think, look, you know, if you don't do therapy, you don't strengthen your body in the area that hurts. How do you expect any of this to ever get better? Right. And the same thing could be true for, for, for psychiatric problems. I've had enough people come be on medications for years, discover a physical activity that they like in whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is, whether it be resistance training, conditioning, a sport, and they've come off their medications and that's the therapy. Right. <laughs> and, uh, that is the ideal scenario. Right. right? And, and not only are you helping your mind, you're helping your body. Right. right. So a hundred percent, I could not agree more. That that needs to be almost a, a given. It should be an automatic. Right. But at the same time, it's very easy to, to, to ignore that. Right. You know, we don't really push that or, or push that narrative enough. Right. And, and then some folks may not necessarily be confident in certain physical activities. So then they feel like they're going to look, you know, stupid or they're going to look, they're going to be embarrassed if they kind of go to a gym and they're not used to going to a gym and they're afraid of looking like they don't, don't know what they're doing. Right. And that's another fear in itself. But right. whatever, it doesn't have, you don't have to go to a gym to figure this out. You right. can be, it could be walking in nature. It could be hiking. It could be mm -hmm. a solo activity. It could be anything, right? But humans need to move. And what little you can, you need to do. Absolutely. There's three scenarios under which people normatively become depressed that I just want to slip in real quick again for, for anyone who's listening. Because I think it, this is what I see the you know, I see these permutations the most and it's, and it's where I think medication often fails because it's sort of more situational or structural. So first one, a loss of some kind, loss of reputation, loss of a loved one, loss of opportunity, you know, that that's depression is a normal expected response in those situations. Number two, which is more subtle is fa failure to give up on an unachievable goal. So somebody who wants a wife back or a partner back who doesn't want them back. Right. right and they refuse to give up on that. A medication typically is not going to address not that. Not going to fix that. Yeah. No, exactly. So that's not going to work. And then the third one, uh, which is often shows up in marriages and in um, work relationships where say, I'll, I'll use a work one. Say someone is really clever, on the ball, motivated, conscientious. They've got a boss who's, let's say, not quite those things. Okay. And what they end up having to do is that if they make, you know, they'll end up making the boss look bad eventually with their own good performance. Mm -hmm. So what they do, and they'll be attacked by that boss, so what they do is have to assume a submissive interpersonal stance within that relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, and the easiest way to do that is to become depressed, right? right? Cause you can finish, I'm not that great. I'm not that smart. Who am I to say this, that, the other thing. So people be, end up getting sort of structurally de depressed within the context of their marriage or relationship with a boss or whatnot. Right. And again, an antidepressant is going to fix that because that's a normal and evolutionarily prescribed reaction to a complex interpersonal right. situation. So anyway, just to sprinkle that in for folks who are listening Absolutely. Is, to, is to, you know, that's half the things like, you know, you asked before, like, where, where do you think this is coming from? And yeah. it's so important for clients to have a conceptualization of why are you depressed? Like you're not depressed for, you know, randomly. Yeah. You know, you get 5% of cases, maybe like melancholic depression where it's like truly a brain disorder. Right. A lot of times it's just uh, situational. Situational. Right. And, and can we address the situational factors? So um, just, to, I, I'll just switch gears off that for a second. Yeah. Tommy, when you prescribe medication, yeah. do you have a sense, when you do go that route, mm -hmm. and I, I understand from, your perspective that it's it's not the go-to you want to explore things mm -hmm. you know rule th some things out and mm -hmm. then but if you do go that route mm -hmm. do you have a sense of how adherent people are <laughs> to, to that strategy because i have a friend who works in the benefit space yeah and you know they're through large analytics they're able to see just how little 
those prescriptions are are renewed or right. you know I can go on and on, on. but mm. what's what's your sense of it as a as a, what do you hear from your clients? What's it's, your sense of that? It's it obviously depends on the population you're dealing with, you know. Right. So so you know there are certain situations where you know I I, I work with populations that are disadvantaged uh, at the Ottawa Mission and and you know. When you when you don't have access to stable housing, your social situation's up in the air. Then obviously compliance is much more difficult. So uh, that that that's you know that's not a fair comparison to that particular population. But if you're looking at kind of middle income or, or upper income populations, you're looking at you're looking at folks where there's compliance is, is is all over the map. And I would say compliance overall is probably pretty poor. And I would say you know. I can't judge because I had a sinusitis a few years back. I'm not used to taking medications. Mm -hmm. I can tell you I missed a few doses. Right. And here I am demanding people follow medication regime. So this isn't any judgment. So I kind of often start with that. I say, look, I kind of self-deprecate and say, look, I, I, I don't always follow medications because I forget. And right. here are the strategies I use to, to take them. Are you are you compliant with medications? Yep. So by kind of displaying a bit of that vulnerability, which is absolutely legitimate, Patients are often a bit more forthcoming, and you find out they often, you know, they take matters in their own hands. They'll adjust the medications on their own. They'll stop medications. They'll try it. They'll take it every second day. They'll do it completely non-prescribed, uh, and and it's very common. And then you don't really know the – you don't get a proper sense if that medication really worked. <laughs> I think one of the things that clients always ask me or they're, they're fearful of is they're, you know, they'll start a medication, and then they're feeling better or worse, which can be the case, of, of course, course. In, the, in the short term. Some people are exquisitely sensitive to these compounds, yeah. and they're like – is it, it's, you know, what's going on here? And, the, and I'm always saying, it's like, the problem is we don't have another one of you that we can run in sort of a randomized control trial design. Yeah. You know, we don't know. So I really urge them to stick with it. Like, you know, please, let's just, if we're going to go down the road, if you're going to bother taking it anyway. Do it. Let's at least do it. Commit. Commit to it. And then we can get some some good data back yeah, uh, around that. I, I, I find the best way of achieving compliance is kind of being upfront about it right away. Right. I say, look, okay, we're going to try medications. I think we've, we've come to the conclusion that medications are the right fit for you. Yeah. That, that's, that, we've established that. Now, here's what you got to know. If you tell people the worst potential outcomes and they're expecting it, they're able to, they're able to deal with it. And I kind of give you an example. If you tell a patient, uh, okay, so I'm about to do a particular procedure on you and it's, there are a lot of potential complications. And there's a, here's a percentage of this happening. And even if we do everything correctly, this could still happen. Yep. And see, that complication occurs. Patients are far more accepting of that because they knew in advance. They, they were going into something with proper consent, informed consent. Right. If you tell somebody to go to another facility and get a test, but you didn't tell them they had to pay for parking, they're going to come back and tear your head off. It yeah. could be something small and innocuous like that. Right. If, if something goes not according to plan, very anti-A-team-like – you know, things uh, things can fall apart, and then you've lo you've lost that trust in that therapeutic alliance. Right. So if you have this medication, you have this idea, okay, I'm going to start this medication. You're going to feel not great for a few weeks in many cases. And here's here are the long term, here are the short term and long term consequences of these medications. Based on that, let's give it a try. I'm going to check up on you very very frequently, and we're going to make sure everything's going okay. And if that doesn't work, we've got other things to try. Right. So there's still a plan should this fail. Right. And that's still that, – that, that I find I get much better results in keeping patients honest. And Absolutely. I can see they're being – they're prescribed. They're refilling their medications as, as needed. Right. And, and, you know, they know exactly every detail about their medication. Then, you know, compliance is occurring, right? Right. So, and you see a significant benefit in many cases. 
So uh, that's kind of the approach I take. Yeah. But does it always work? No, it, it doesn't. But that's 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 the one I've, I've found a bit of success with. It feels like one of the dark horses in terms of uh, uh, interfering with adherence or compliance are sexual side effects. Yes. I, I, I think people are hesitant to mention them. That it, it almost feels like it, 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 it's sort of luxurious to, to, to bring it up in the sense of, right. well, you know, it's just sexual side effects. But, you know, for most people, libido is a primary aspect of their quality of life. Or it's, a, it's a huge part of being a human. Huge part of their identity, of course. Or, of course. And um, so it's interesting that people are so quick to downplay it. I think it's, you know, part of the narrative in our society is that mm. sex is dirty and yes. you know, like whatnot. Uh, that seems to be changing. But in any case, you know, Tommy, how how likely does it feel? I mean, I guess you wouldn't know who's not talking about it. Right. Right? You don't know, we don't know. You don't right. know what you don't know. But how often do you hear complaints of the sexual side effect piece? And, and is there any, I've often seen Wellbutrin yes. pres- prescribed as a, as a sort of workaround to that. Absolutely. Uh, do, you have a, do you have a take on that conundrum? Or, so I guess, what do you hear? And is there anything that can be done? To yeah. <laughs> so any time I prescribe this, you know, man or, man or woman or, or, any, or, or, or transgender, anybody. Anybody who's taking this, you have to realize that this could have unintended effects. And right. if I tell them that in advance, then they're much more likely to tell me about it in retrospect. They say, yeah, I tried the medication, but I lost all interest in sex. Or it just wasn't, I just wasn't aroused. Or I wasn't able to maintain an erection. I just wasn't able to perform. Right. And I wasn't into it. And if they knew that, they think, okay, well, this is a normal reaction. I was expecting this. And now, okay, that's, and then they even often discuss it with their partner or, or partners, whoever, whoever, whoever they're having relations with. And, and if everyone's on uh, cards on the table and everyone knows this could potentially happen, then, then it's, then it, it takes the, it takes some of that difficulty out of it. But if you prescribe that medication, if someone else prescribed the medication, I didn't get a chance to warn them about it, then I may not know. Right. And then oftentimes as you're about to, you know, Let's say they 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 have, they're on this medication. They say, ah, you know what? It's kind of helping, but I don't I don't really like. It. I don't want to try. I want to try something else. Right? And kind of go. Well, why? They they just don't really. They're not really forthcoming. Right. Then you know you you try another a trial of another medication, and they come back and they say, ah, you know what? Um, the the sexual side effects aren't as bad, but but I'm not feeling as good. And it turns out I think that other medication was making me feel quite a bit better. Right. But now you know uh, you know. I think I'd rather go with that first medication. So like, you right. know what I mean? It, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what, it's always like, which your which problem would you rather have? Yes. You know, which is, yes. which is an unfortunate reality of life in general. Often yes. <laughs> it's yes. like of all the, of all the problems that are going to be there, which are the ones you're most likely to, to, to be willing to tolerate? Pick the poison you could put the ketchup on and, and, and enjoy. <laughs> really. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think that's, uh, and, and, and if you put it in those, in those terms, then, then at least patients can make a better decision. Right. Even though it's not perfect. It's oh, not yeah. ideal. And, and, and to be fair, I'll be honest, I, I use Wellbutrin as, as that backup. Do people report back that it works? Yeah, well, at least the sexual side effects have, have certainly improved. Right. So I see a much less incidence of that. I mean, again, I can't say any large population studies here, but I've, I've seen a reduced amount of sexual side effects with that. Right. In some people, it works very well for, for, for whatever condition we're using it, but in, many, in some cases, it just doesn't. Right. So, so this is where you kind of try. It's like, look, it, may, it might reduce your sexual side effects, but it may, you know, if it doesn't help the 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 condition that you're dealing with, then right. we need to come up with something else. Absolutely. Right? So it's like you might as well not take the medication at all. <laughs> right. You know, what's the point? What's the point? No. Right? Uh, you know, uh, where, absolutely. You know. So, but but it is a challenge, and that's the hardest thing. You know, um, for for young men in particular, I find yes. is, is the biggest population where you have to convince them to say, look, you know, I think if you don't take this. What happens to you 
is the consequence is worse than the lack of sexual function. Right. And in some situations, that's the hard reality. Exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's you just know. a weighing out of where's the cost benefit inflection point yeah. and uh, weighing that. For, and, that and it's different for everybody. I was just going to say, that's an individually tailored sort of piece, right? If you're dealing with a 65-year-old gentleman yeah. or versus a 45-year-old woman or right. someone 27 transgendered, right. I mean, it, there's going to be a different equation that goes into what's right for that person. Correct. Depending on their, uh, depending on their, their life circumstance. Yeah. This is where, you know, this is where getting to know your patient really, really, uh, really comes into play, you know? Absolutely. You know? Speaking of that, I mean, as a, as a family doc, typically the, you know, the challenges that, that we see in the mental health sphere, uh, are nested within family systems, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you, the spouse involved, maybe kids, right. things like that. Right. How much of a tap dance is it for you navigating, speaking with, husband on Monday about his challenges maybe to do with his spouse and then seeing spouse on Wednesday <laughs> with her perspective yep. on those, on those problems oh boy. and respecting confidentiality and, but you know, and, and knowing that, you know, things that they don't know, you know, how do you think through that quagmire? Because I, I again, I don't think, you, you know, it's not really client's job to think through that, but um, it, I think it may sometimes be invisible to them. Some of the quandaries that, we as healthcare providers have in terms of uh, navigating family systems issues with confidentiality, informed consent, all that piece. I think, you know, obviously this is a gross exaggeration, but I kind of feel like a soldier going through no man's land, hoping not to step on landmines. Right. Every step is calculated. Every thought I'm having to take that extra second and realize, hang on a minute here. I can't divulge certain details that are confidential. Of course. There are times I have to breach confidentiality. Most situations do not rise to that level. Right. You know, whether it be threat to the person or a, a potential threat to others. Right. That's pretty much the only time I can ever breach confidentiality. Right. So it's very challenging. I, I've been in probably, I can probably say, and count on one hand how many times I've been involved in multiple families, or multiple members of the same family around the same stressor, around the right. same issue. And this sometimes involves parents, children, and grandparents. And there's many, 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 many moving parts. But um, this is where you basically, you have to divide and conquer. You have to, you have to treat everybody like their own individual silo yep. with an eye on the overall benefit of the family. And especially for the dependents. Like the, that must be so tough because because <laughs> someone inevitably is going to lose out on an optimization for their treatment. Correct. If, if you're looking at the gestalt sort of uh, uh, outcome there, eh? Someone's, someone's taken uh, a licking. Yeah. Someone's walking away with a worse situation than maybe they walked in with. Right. You know, rarely can you improve everything uh, for everybody oh. <laughs> to their level, <laughs> exactly. to their level of satisfaction. It's not going to happen. You're not going to please everybody. So, yep. so, you know, it, it, it's a challenge now. And, and then the other, the other challenge is what I think would be very beneficial would be family counseling. And the yes. end, you know, one, one, one person is amenable to it, but the other people aren't. And then that creates a situation where it, it's never going to resolve. Right. So it, it's, and I can't say I have any solutions to this. The best you can do is treat everybody individually and, 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 and persistently risk stratifying right. <laughs> to make sure there's no safety concerns. The way our system is set up or the, or the I guess, the, the culture within psychology is uh, very, very heavy on avoiding dual relationships. Right. Right. So I'm not able to see a husband and a wife 
independently as clients. Right. I, I, w- I would refer them to a colleague. You know, we bring spouses in every once in a while for consults or fill in blanks. Right. Collateral. So, exactly. So we're, we're able to kind of partition things off. Um, but I've, I've just really felt a lot of empathy for family docs uh, and chatting with my own family doc in terms of just navigating yeah. some of these family systems issues. And, oh, yeah. man, that, that cannot be easy. It's not easy. And the hard, the really hard part, too, is when you start dealing with parents, the grandparents or the children, where their wishes, they're afraid to express them. Right. And there's certainly, you know, if you ask a 16-year-old teenager, you know, so tell me about your sexual history with your parents sitting there. Right. Let's just say you're not, usually you're not going to get – a very honest answer. Right. So this is where you do have to separate them. And I let them know, let the parents know in advance, look, I need to talk to your kids separately. And that's just the reality. And, yep. and some parents are resistant to it. He's a woman, sure, he's yeah. my child. And I understand, <laughs> you know, we're, we're both parents, so you get it, right? Yeah. You, you, you understand that, okay, uh, you're going to want to know what's going on with your child, but it's just what has to be done. Uh, I also think too, uh, I had a, had a recent situation where, uh, where, you know, I had an elderly patient who didn't want heroic treatments from a from you know a cancer uh, that had been developed. Parent, uh, the, uh, the the children uh, of this particular patient, adult children, are, were were pushing for full treatment, and that that parent was really not wanting that. Right, and this causing a lot of anxiety and strife. And this 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 patient was was panicked. <laughs> they didn't know what to do. Yeah, and couldn't express where they were coming from, and at the same time didn't want to tell their loved ones how they really felt. So then I had to make it I had to make a call. I had to I had to I had to be the bad guy. And right. and and oftentimes, you know, that patient asked me to express their wishes. And then you're caught in the middle. Right. And that was very uncomfortable for me. Oh, no doubt. But it had to be done. And right. if that's what it takes to advocate for my patient, and then I will. Yeah. Just it just wasn't easy. <laughs> no. Oh, Tommy, no doubt. It just wasn't easy. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not easy to interject oneself into a family system <sighs> under the best of circumstances, <sighs> let alone end of life, you know, t- types of discussions. And between that and, and, and I uh, said so the hard, one of the hardest part of my jobs is, is, uh, is intervening with seniors and in, in, in taking away driver's licenses. Yes. Because you know, you're creating a psychological bomb yes. for this patient. You're, you're basically affecting their quality of life. Hugely so. And that's a very huge challenge. And those are yeah. things like, I go, I honestly go home and, and you got to work through them. Oh, <laughs> for sure. you up inside. Absolutely. I want to come back to, to your own self-care in a, in a second. We can have a chat about that. Yeah. I, I'm just being mindful of your time and oh, keeping yeah, an eye on absolutely. things. And there's a, um, there, there's an issue that I do, I do want to get to uh, just around risk assessment. Yeah. Suicide. Yeah. Uh, things of that nature, just because it's, it's um, so prevalent uh, in the media these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would just love to, you know, have a lens in on how you think through that. And I'm, and again, I'm, I'm really sort of feeling quite lucky for the luxury of time I have yeah. with my own clients where I can sit there for 50 minutes, an hour. Yeah. And typically if I'm going to do a risk assessment, it, it's going to happen within the first five minutes of sitting down. Right. And then I have, you know, it, relatively speaking, oodles of time mm-hmm. to work through that. Right. Make calls, send people to the hospital, et cetera. Right. As a family physician, how do you think through risk assessment? How do you deal with the extremely, in my in my view, compressed window that you have to deal with, sort of life or death, let's call it, yeah. uh, kind of calls? Absolutely. Yeah. So, like, I, Tommy, I, how do you <laughs> please? How do you think through that? It's uh, it's a challenge. The first time you do it, my word! I mean, you think it's like the first time you end up having to push on somebody's chest in the midst of a code blue when somebody's heart stops, or right. you're running a CPR, and the first time you do that, it's 
panic. You just right. you, you feel lost. You wonder what am I doing? What am I doing here? You feel like a complete and total fraud. Right. Like how am I qualified to send this person to hospital? I don't know. I'm not qualified to run my own life. Right. <laughs> and you start to think, oh boy, am I doing the right thing here? But then with time, with with practice, you get more exposure. Right. I've had to form three people in the last week. <laughs> really? Three different people. Now, again, I work with the high-risk populations, especially at the mission. Tommy, can you explain? I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, certainly aware of it, yeah. but can you explain for the listener who yeah. may not know yeah. uh, what a form is yes. and when it's used and, Absolutely. you know, what the implications of that? Absolutely. So form one is when, you know, a physician makes a determination. Now, I think there's other clinicians that could do this, but primarily it's physicians that make a determination that someone is expressing thoughts of harming themselves or someone else. Much like kind of what I was mentioning earlier about breaking confidentiality. It's one of right. the few times I can do, uh, I'm obligated to do so because there's a threat to life. And when somebody is expressing that, that, those kind of thoughts, you don't automatically send them to a, to, to a hospital against their will. And a Form 1 essentially dictates that a police, police officer or a team of police officer will come and they'll take you. And they're not arresting you, but they're taking you to the hospital to be assessed by a psychiatrist within a short window. Right. And, uh, and, and basically the psychiatrist makes the decision as to whether this person is, is a legitimate harm to themselves because we're not the experts. We don't make that call. Right. But if you're expressing thoughts or interests in that, then I have to intervene. Right. And, you know, you, you start to, I mean, again, once you get to know your patients over a long period of time, you, you can really risk assess much better. And that's Absolutely. the benefit of having a longitudinal relationship, you know. The hardest ones are when I meet a client for the first time. Very first time. And you don't even know, what, you don't know what it means. You're like, is this normal for the person? Absolutely. Are they really activated? Are Absolutely. they, in some instances, am I, is the re relationship being tested, mm -hmm. you know, to see if I can, am trustworthy and won't abandon them? Absolutely. So anyway, sorry to interrupt no, you. No, but, no, but no, it's yeah. Those, it's important for people to understand those when you don't have any context. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, th that's an intimidating set of circumstances to do a, a risk assessment under. I, I had a really good uh, experienced clinician kind of give me uh, some just a few quick tips. And, and it applies to medical problems and, and psychiatric problems. And we really need to be talking about psychiatric problems. That's medical problems. They really are. They're all the same thing. Right. They're the same thing. It's like right. an ankle sprain, really. We need to get rid of that that barrier. And I've just, I've just contributed to it by putting in two different silos. But ultimately, <laughs> it's a continuum. And inevitably, you know, somebody comes in with, you know, chest pains. I don't know if they're having a heart attack. The only way to know if somebody's having a heart attack for sure is to send them to the hospital and get more testing, blood work. Right. And, and, and other tests. And... Um, when something like that pops up and I'm thinking, okay, this person's got chest pains. I don't know anything about this person. I don't know their history. I don't know what to do. There's this thing called, the, we call it, you know, the colloquial term in some, some of the docs I work with, we talk about, you know, the sleep test. Can you go home and sleep at night after you send that patient home? Right. Can you do that? Right. If you don't think you can do that, you have to intervene. Right. And that means sending that chest pain to hospital to get, to get a workup in ambulance <laughs> uh, or... It's, it's uh, sending somebody against their will to the hospital to get assessed by a psychiatrist on a Form 1. Right. And that's the kind of test I've learned to rely on. Right. And I hate to say it, it's a bit of gestalt. But if they, if they say certain words, if they express certain things, and I'm convinced that there's at least a reasonable risk of this, then I, I am obligated to, uh, to be involved. Now, are there situations where I thought, okay, I think this is, you know, there's passive suicidal ideation, meaning they're expressing thoughts that maybe, you know, maybe it'd be better, things would be better off if I wasn't around, but I don't have a specific plan and, and they've right. got certain protective factors. You know, there's somebody else in their life that's watching over them or they've got things in their life that you know mean more to them than, than, than what they want to do. And you right. know that won't, will, will protect them from, from harming themselves. In those situations, those are people you never you never take away that freedom from those right. folks and you follow them very closely. But the folks you don't know, 
and the folks that express something really, really significant, you're, you're stuck. Probably at that at that point, time constraints go out the window, right? Because the yes. person's safety is, is, is paramount. Yes. Um, I think one of my frustrations at, at times doing a risk assessment, and sometimes the client just doesn't know, but I mean, sometimes there's manipulation that, that can happen that's subtle sure. where... Uh, if the person, you know, are you at risk of harming yourself? Do you have a plan? I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, my general rule of thumb is like, if the person doesn't know, then, then they're not safe. They're not safe. Absolutely. Right. Like absolutely. That, I, I only go on certainties yes. as, as much as humanly possible. Absolutely. But sometimes I find I do have to drill down uh, in a, in maybe a more assertive way, you know, in an effort to keep the person safe ultimately. Yeah. And sometimes my sometimes my ethos is I'd rather have that person mad at me. Yes. And alive. Alive. Right. <laughs> absolutely. Like, I will happily meet with you to smooth this over. Absolutely. But in the interim, I, I just need to do what I need to do right now. And we can smooth this out later. Alive and mad is is, 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 is better than dead and happy. Yeah. Right. It, and exactly. In, in most situations, obviously. But I mean, right. you know, I think I think in that, in that scenario, you have to. You have to be the bad guy. Right. And and it's hard to do this job in that context because not everyone's going to like you or appreciate the work you're doing. Right. And, uh, and and sometimes you're way off. Sometimes you overcall things. And right. we're, all, we're all human. Right. And if you catch us on a vulnerable day, you know, I, I'll be honest, uh, my father passed away a few years ago and, and I returned to work relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in those first week or two, I realized, you know, it, I, I, I got better. Yeah. But in that first week or two, returning to practice, I took two weeks off. I went right back to it. Yeah. And, and in retrospect, I probably should have taken more time. But right. you know, in those first weeks or two, you know, uh, was I fully was I was I operating at my best? No, right. I can't say that I was. Yeah, you're you're a human being at the end. You're of the, a human being, right? Yeah, you ebbs and flows. You know, you could have a kid that was up all night, or you're tired, or some life happens, and and you have to go in and, and respond. And and sometimes you might be a bit more sensitive to certain things, right? And if you feel vulnerable, you're more likely to to make sure that you do the right thing, the safe thing, right? Even though it may not be the right thing, so right? You're gonna make over calls. You're gonna make mistakes, right? Yeah. I want to get to the self care piece in one second. You got it. Um, I'll just put in one little comment here for anyone listening. Mm-hmm potentially who's in a position of power to do something about it. It is so frustrating to have a client who's, especially clients who are sort of in a gray zone, right? Where it's not, you know, they, they're not voicing a clear plan. They're not voicing a clear intent, but man, are they ever decompensated <laughs> and they're not doing well. You know, they're not going to get admitted. Yeah. You know, I'll even, I'll send them to the civic with a letter. Yes. I might even call ahead yes. to try and speak to the psychiatrist on call and say, Hey, listen, I'm sending so-and-so over, mm-hmm. got some real concerns. I've known them for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hate to say it, sometimes they are sent away with a Seroquel, basically. Yes. And, uh, and, and I get the pressure that they're under. I'm not, right. I'm certainly not blaming the, those no. facilities. They are overrun. Absolutely. They, they are overrun. But uh, our society needs to do a much better job of creating systems and, and um, treatments, ultimately, for folks who are highly distressed, don't have a lot of resources at their disposal, but are not so ill that they, you know, would, would benefit from a immediate hospitalization. Yeah, inpatient, more is more of a kind of a in in between. Yeah, you'd say it, almost like a day hospital kind of thing. Ex- exactly, that's right. We're, right. we're we're trying to build in some of those services here. We have an intensive day program for anxiety disorders where people come from, from the afternoon, one to four p.m. Monday through Friday. Brilliant. And uh, yeah, we're because basically what we're trying to do here is is you know I want to put a plug in, but just but, you, a, you, but you, people need to know. Every, every layer of frustration we that we have as private practice clinicians, we were trying to build a service basically selfishly to meet our own need in sure. terms of stuff that doesn't exist. So Absolutely. just so people know that that's where we're going with that. But um, I really want to talk about the quality of life piece. I remember looking before at a survey of, of quality of life among physicians, especially in the different disciplines. Right. And it, I would, Tommy, I was struck by how low their reported quality of life was. 
uh, w- within the profession. I, and I wouldn't doubt actually that it's too much different in psychology. Mm-hmm. These you know, are incredibly hard positions for, for different reasons, of course. You're dealing with, the, yeah. Dealing with different things. Yeah. And so, you know, what's your sense of the burnout level or quality of life among your physician colleagues? Right. What are the kind of things that people, that, that physicians do that are effective for taking care of themselves uh, so that you can practice for 20 25 years, 30 years. I think, um, I, I think there's a high burnout rate. There really is. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think especially with modern telecommunications and, 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 and with physicians being able to be reached all the time, you know, I think you can never turn your brain off. Right. You know, it's, I think traditionally when physicians used to work long hours, you're, you're in the hospital, but when you're out of the hospital, you know, you can't always be reached every 10 seconds, you know, and I think, I think that, that there's a bit of, there's a benefit to being away. Yes. From, from that responsibility, even if you're not physically there. Yep. Having that beeper, beeper go off or that phone go off, you, it's uh, – I'll tell you to a first-year resident, uh, about the scariest sound in the world <laughs> when you hear that beeper on that first night. You, know, you must don't never be. get down into deep sleep, right, in a sense because you're oh, – Oh, I didn't. I didn't even bother. Right, because your brain is just – Con- must be constantly monitoring for that beep beep beep. As a resident, I'll tell you this: I, I, uh, you know, I'm a good sleeper. I'm the, yeah. I'm the type of guy that can fall asleep standing at a concert. You know, uh, like, I, like your brother, like my brother, exactly. <laughs> he was always a bit quicker, but it's a Thomas thing, man. Yeah, we're, we're, we're great sleepers, and yeah. Unfortunately, um, when I fall asleep, I often want to wake up in the morning. I have multiple alarms. Yeah, <laughs> a physical one, a vibrating thing, an alarm. I have to get up and, and yeah. disarm, and you know, uh, it's 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 a process. Yeah. So when I fell asleep on call, there are times I wake up, answer a page, not realize who I talked to, what medication I ordered, and have to spend the rest of the rest of the evening trying to figure out what I just said and who I said it to. Wow. Not a good thing. So I just yep. kept I kept awake. So as a result, you you, you get burnt out. You you're working a lot. You know, twenty four oh, yeah. hours or sometimes longer than that, and and um, it's it's hard. So so in that situation, I think the biggest thing to avoid burnout is is to take time away. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, balancing things because it's very easy to take on work. It's very hard to give work away. And, you're absolutely right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So uh, boundaries. I mean, I, th- I think that goes for anyone in any walk of life. I, I know the thing that I spend the most time with my supervisees on is establishing boundaries. And like you beautifully said before, learning how to say no mm-hmm. and as soon as possible, essentially. As soon as possible, right? Being yeah. like, yeah, you know what? I could probably do that and I want to help out, but it's going to come at a cost. Right. And that cost is something you're going to end up having to pay either now or later. Right. You will pay it. As a general assumption, it's a broad stroke. But given the amount of education that, you know, we do to get, you know, to get to the end point of our respective professions, there's a certain right. amount of perfectionism involved, right? Yeah. And, and you know, maybe, maybe I dare say conscientiousness as well. Sure. And I think a lot of us, unless we are hitting the zone of pain, mm-hmm. we don't have a sense that we've done enough. Right? Or, right. or that we've hit the limits. Like, okay, like I'm kind of hurting now. So that's an indication that I've, I've done my very best. Yeah. You, you translate to, to, to physical activity, right? You go to the gym, you say, right. if I'm not burning, if I haven't gone to failure, if I haven't really pushed myself, then right. I haven't done something beneficial, which right. isn't true. Right. It just isn't. And I think it's, you, you got to apply that to your mental health as well. For physicians, Tommy, I mean, I often use you guys as a phys- uh, fictitious example yeah. in, in the sense of, uh, sense of control well, with my supervisees, right? I'm like, imagine you were a heart surgeon and, uh, you know, you said, okay, no one can ever die in the course of my practice. <laughs> you would not be able to psychologically survive the job, right? No way. So, you know, how in, in your training or in your day-to-day or in with your interactions with colleagues, mm-hmm. how how much is a, is a culture of tolerating uncertainty and uncontrollability curated amongst you folks? Is that something that's baked in? Do you come into it on your own? 
How, how do you arrive at that? Because I'm assuming you have to have some keen sense of that to survive what you see every day. Yeah, yeah. I think I think a lot of folks, especially that go into medicine, we're all you know we're all you know, scientifically oriented. We all kind of like uh, you know we like learning about how things work, right? And the hard part in medicine, especially in primary care, um, is the unknown. You don't have a test available to you necessarily right away on, off the top of your head. I can't just order, you know, tests and, and see the results in most cases. And then you start to realize those tests themselves aren't perfect either. And then you also realize the information you're getting may not be the correct information, whether it be right. patients, you know, you know, not being able to communicate properly what's going on with them. So there's a lot of variability. And you realize that, you know, <laughs> doctors aren't really that smart. Compared to the rest of the population, we're often very of a very average folks who care, who are mm -hmm. conscientious and hardworking and diligent. Right. You get really bright people in medicine, but you don't need to be a genius to do this job. You really don't. You just you need to care. Like, likewise, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say guilty as charged. Yeah, um, my my friends call me the stupidest doctor they know. Oh my and god, and they know one. <laughs> <laughs> you went through medical school again? Oh, you'll always be an idiot to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got a PhD, really? Okay, yeah. well, how about that? It's, it's true. Yeah. yeah. You know, with, you, with your friends and family members, they'll never be impressed. No, of, of course, of course, and rightly so. And rightly so. Yeah, some of the smartest, most accomplished people I know, I think, are the biggest buffoons. Yeah, but but uh, but really, I love them. It's out of love, right? Of course. But but uh, you know, I think I think you know, especially I see this a lot with you know colleagues that used to be engineers, you know, that did they do you know very precise type sciences before, and they get to medicine, and then it's all kind of open ended. And you think, oh God, I got to deal with this uncertainty, and that doesn't jive with certain people, and you learn pretty quickly. Whether this field is going to be okay with you, you're going to be okay to adapt to that. Right. <laughs> you learn very quick because you yeah. never have the answer right away. You can be the smartest guy in the room. You could be Albert Einstein and you won't know the answer all the time. So you tell me, I think it's so great that you said that because I mean, so many clients come in uh, that are, number one, they, if the doctor doesn't know the answer, they mm -hmm. get so concerned. Yes. And also their expectations can also be very unrealistic. Absolutely. Right. They're, they're mad that the, you know, the physician doesn't know what's going on. And right. I always try and impress upon them. It's like, guys, like... Really, medicine, psychology, we're still very much in a growth phase in terms of knowledge. The human body, is, it's, it's a miracle that we know even what we know. We do know, yeah. Right. So I really try to temper people's expectations because I do find, you know, maybe with the internet or whatnot or TV shows, you know, too much Grey's Anatomy or whatever, <laughs> people have a sense that the doc always knows what's going on. Boy. And then if they don't know, it's like, you know, call house. Right. You know? <laughs> right. And the, the, real, the, the, the reality is house is wrong sometimes. Right. House doesn't always get it right because right. we, we're operating off faulty information. Yeah. If the data you're collecting off of your patient isn't 100% reliable and, and, and if we don't fully understand the processes that are going on in your body, yep. how will we ever actually succeed? You know, how will we ever be right all the time? Right. And, and, uh, and, and that uncertainty, same kind of gets, gets, get back, gets back to some of my overarching points earlier where you think if patients know what to expect and say, look, we may not know what happens after this test. And I use MRIs as the example. Yep. A lot of people want MRIs in their back for their back pain. And I always kind of tell them, an MRI doesn't fix everything. It doesn't tell you everything. Especially not with back pain. Especially I mean, not if, with back I mean, pain. If you, if you did MRIs on a bunch of guys your my yeah. our, our, our age, age yeah, yeah. you're going to see all kinds of findings that have no correlation with pain whatsoever. Absolutely. Yeah. MRIs don't necessarily always correlate with the symptoms you're having. Right. So these tests aren't perfect. So half the time we're guessing and we're trying to respond based on how you respond to our, or whatever intervention we came up with. Right. So it's a bit of a learning process for everybody. So when patients are aware of that, they become more understanding. And, and folks that have been through the medical system through chronic illnesses understand that. 
Right. You'll learn more off somebody who's lived with depression for 30 years and has succeeded in a variety of ways. How, how They'll tell you more about their disease process than I can ever tell them. Sure, yeah. 10 out of 10 times. Someone right. who's dealt with cancer for years will tell me more about their disease than I could ever tell them. So living with that kind of thing, you know, half the time we're, we're, we're making educated guesses. And I think as soon as patients understand that, they'll become more understanding. Yeah. But, you know, we don't know everything. I really appreciate you putting that perspective out so explicitly because I think it's one that folks need, they need more of a sense of. Yeah. Uh, again, we're in that sort of like magic pill sort of culture yeah. and uh, or magic answers. Yeah. You know, we're just used to having answers on our phone, essentially. Absolutely. But, but a doctor's not a smartphone, right? Like it, it's- It is not. And, and neither is the body. No. Uh, amenable to that same thing. I had a bunch of uh, questions that I would typically ask our psychotherapist, and yeah. I, I'll, I'll probably defer on some of those. But mm-hmm. what's the thing you've ended up being most wrong about in terms of, uh, you, you could frame it from mental health in, in terms of medicine or just right. medicine in general, but what's something where you've done sort of a, you know, maybe a mea culpa to yourself and you're just like, geez, man, I did, did I ever, was I ever, you know, way off the mark on that one? You know, like you can you can look at a career in medicine and and you find any physician that says they don't do that, and you're finding a liar. Right, we do that <laughs> regularly. Yeah, I mean, I I you know there are approaches where I used to think, okay, uh, I'm going to do things a certain way. I'm gonna I'm gonna counsel people in a certain way. I'm gonna give them that this this tool, and this will fix that problem. And then you get bit by that yeah. patient. That is the exception to the rule, and it's very humbling. Yep. And after you're wrong enough, <laughs> you start to realize, okay, we actually start to succeed based on our failures. Right. You know, uh, w- the reason we know how to treat certain conditions is because we learned off of experience. Right. We survive certain conditions now based on the bones of our, and blood of our ancestors. Right. How many people had to die and suffer before we made that mistake? And we thought that was the best treatment at the time. When we now realize, wow, we were way off. Right. You know, the, you hear about some of the treatments people used to use even 100 years ago for certain things. Right. Wouldn't make any sense now. Even 30, 40 years ago don't is, make sense. Is there a treatment right now, Tommy, that you, for mental health or otherwise, that you have an intuition of like, yeah, 30 years from now, we're not going to be doing we're that We're going to be messing this up. I think it's transgender medicine. Yep. I, I, I can't say I was, I, there was a lot of exposure to it mm-hmm. and, and there's a lack of understanding. Yep. And when I encounter patients that are, that are, that are trans, it's oftentimes I say, look, you know, I'll be honest, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Right. But I'm open to learning. Right. And we're going to do this together. Right. And, yeah. and oftentimes that's enough for folk, most folks. Yeah. They know that, look, I'm being honest here. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Well, and not a lot of people would. I mean, it's, it's, it's an emergent field of study for the most, like That's it. E- even just at, at a basic scientific level. That's it. I don't think we have a good enough understanding. And I think the best clinicians I've seen are the ones that say, look, I don't know what I'm doing here, but right. we're going to figure this out. Right. If you show that, that, that caring, that, that interest in learning, that, that makes a good clinician. Right. So you're never going to know everything. Yep. Well, doctors can really only prescribe a handful of conditions accurately. Right. When you look at some evidence, you know, we're really experts in only very small sets of conditions, even primary care clinicians. Sure. Yeah. You know, we just don't really know that much about everything. But if you, if you care, you'll find somebody that does know what to do with this patient. Right. You'll find something that works for them via somebody else. Right. You'll do that work for them. You'll, you'll do the legwork. And, and I think that's, that's how you can, you can improve on our failures, but we do have to fail in order to succeed. Right. 
You know, I think I think anyone that's anyone that succeeds at any 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 craft or any field will tell you how many times you've had to fail before you actually know what's up. You have to be willing to be bad to be good at something. You betcha. You know, you, got, it, you can't be afraid to fail. Yes, failure somewhere along the way got a bad name, and uh, I, I wish we could rebrand it. Maybe, mm. maybe we're starting right now, Tommy. No, <laughs> <laughs> right here, right now. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, listen, man, I want to uh, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. I know uh, time here with me is time away from patients. So uh, I really appreciate that. I'd love to have you on again. I would love to be back. I, I got to tell you, I, I learned a bunch here. Likewise. You absolutely. Know, I, I, this is really, really informative for, for, for folks like me. And, and I encourage, you know, all healthcare providers, regardless of your field, to talk to somebody outside of your lane, outside of your silo. Yes. You know, for all clinicians. I mean, if, if you haven't talked to many surgeons, go, you know, grab a coffee, grab a few beer, grab a drink with them, you know. Know, right. Learn off of them, you know, learn off your psychiatry colleagues, learn off your psychologist colleagues, learn off our allied health professionals, right? Yeah. You, you, you learn, you, you, if you stop learning, don't, don't bother, uh, don't bother being this job. I totally agree. Well, thanks Tommy for your time. Again, love to have you back. Absolutely. I'm going to consider you a friend of the podcast. Sounds for, great. For, for, from here on I'm in, I'm in, <laughs> Come in. Excellent. Okay. Right. Well, listen, have yourself a great weekend and uh, thanks everyone to listening and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks very much. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.